Have you ever received a letter that changed your life? Or if you're under 25 here and had never gotten a letter in your life, have you ever received a, an online message or a text message that changed your life? Maybe you received a love letter that took a relationship that you were in to a whole new level. Maybe on the other side, you, you received a message that broke up a significant relationship. Maybe you received a card where someone gave you a significant amount of money. Or maybe you received something from the CRA demanding money back. Maybe you received a notice of being accepted to a university. Or a notice of immigration, of citizenship to a new country. Even some of you here in Canada. Maybe you received a job offer, a court summons, something about your health. Any of these have the potential for radically altering the course of your life in a moment's notice. Now, you may not have known it, but you could consider the first time that you received a Bible to be the most significant letter you've actually ever received. Because, really, the Bible is like God's letter to mankind. His messages for us. And if you've never received a Bible before, then come see me afterwards. I'll give one to you for free. But, what letter could be more important than the one that you, re- than one that you would receive from your Creator? A letter that tells you why you exist, how to find God and how to live to please him. What could be more important than that? Today we're going to begin a new series going through another book of the Bible, which happens to be one of a number of books in Scripture that is a letter itself. So it's a letter within the letter. But I'm sure that when the original recipients of this letter got it and read it, it was life-changing for them. And it's a testament to the power of God's word that it can still be life-changing for us, even to this day. Today, if you have a a Bible, go ahead and uh, open up to the book or the letter of Philippians. You can go check your mailbox. Or, ding, you got mail. (laughs) All right, letter of Philippians in the New Testament. I want everyone to be able to see this for themselves. So if you don't have a Bible of your own, grab one from the pew or around you in the library. Turn to page 980 in those Bibles. But before we jump in and venture into this exciting new territory in God's Word, let's ask God for His help today. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, you know how much I need you this morning. And so... I call out to you again, and I depend on you today. Please take my words, speak truth through them to everyone here. I pray that your word would shine forth, that your, your truth would go forth in power today, that it would convict, that it would encourage, that it would draw us to repentance, and that our lives would be changed from this day on. Thank you for your grace. May your grace just pervade throughout this message. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're there in Philippians 1, the first words of this letter set the stage and the context 
for the rest of it. In verse 1, it says this, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, some of you may recognize some of those names and titles and places. Others of you might not be able to tell them apart from Joe Blue and Timbuktu. That's okay. Okay, we're going to take just a couple minutes, explain the backstory behind this letter. The first things we see here are the names of the authors of the book, Paul and Timothy. So unlike today where we sign our name at the bottom, they sign their name at the top. Paul and Timothy. Paul is one of the most well-known characters in the second half of the Bible, having written over at least 13 of the books of the New Testament. But he wasn't always a noble guy. In fact, he was once a notorious scoundrel known as Saul. And Saul was a very religious Jew who murderously persecuted the early church. But one day, Jesus appeared to him from heaven in glory, and Saul's life changed forever. He repented, he believed in Christ, took the name Paul, and then God gave him a new job. He would no longer fight the church. Instead, he would help build the church and spread the church. And Paul spent the rest of his life traveling the world, preaching the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, everyone who would listen, until the day that he laid down his life for the sake of that gospel. One of, on one of Paul's journeys, he met a stellar young man named Timothy. And Paul's meeting of Timothy is recorded in Acts 16, which says this, Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Well, if you continue reading there, Paul soon recruited Timothy to join him on his travels. And over the years, Timothy became one of Paul's most trusted and valued companions. They were essentially like father and son, at least spiritually speaking. But at the beginning of Philippians, don't know if you noticed, they present themselves as equals, both servants in Christ. Servants of Christ. And even though as we go along, we're going to see Paul is actually the primary author of Philippians. The second thing the first verse gives us is the intended audience, who this letter was written to. So it says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So the book is named after who the letter was written to, who received it, the Philippians, specifically the people who made up the church in Philippi. Now, we don't really know anything about Philippi now, so I'll fill you in really quick. Philippi was this key city in the Roman Empire in Macedonia. It's the eastern side of modern-day Greece. It's named after Philip, the father of Alexander the Great. It's an interesting tidbit. But Philippi was located on this major interior trading route. So it was a strategic trade city of the day. Many merchants and vendors were constantly on their way in and out of the city. Philippi was also an official Roman colony, so its residents were Roman citizens. And the city had a distinct Roman flavor to it, although it was really very multicultural. Both Latin and Greek were spoken extensively, and Greek and Roman and pagan gods were all worshipped in their temples. But this isn't actually the first time Philippi comes up in the Bible. 
It's worth seeing this. So if you would, please flip back a handful of pages to Acts 16. Acts 16, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that's mainly on page 925. This is right after, very soon after, Timothy joined Paul on his journey, along with Silas and Luke. There's a little contingent of them going around. Start reading Acts 16, verse 6. It says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now remember I just said Philippi is part of Macedonia. Look at verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we, he, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And while they were staying there in Philippi, they had a number of memorable encounters. Look in verse 13. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were suppo- where there, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, Lydia is this influential businesswoman staying in, stationed in Philippi. Paul's able to tell her about Jesus. God opens her heart to respond. And soon enough, her house becomes like a missionary home base to Paul and his companions. But they eventually did get into some trouble in town. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and, and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in, attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many bows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So that sounds pretty dire and disheartening, right? Wrong. Being beaten and imprisoned only set the stage for a miracle. Look in verse 25. About midnight, 
Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into the house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So are you getting the picture of Philippi? No matter what people did to try to stop it, the gospel kept advancing in literally earth-shaking ways. And people just kept getting saved and baptized, and the church in Philippi was officially birthed. Unfortunately, Paul and Silas didn't get to enjoy this fruit for very long. Look at the very end of the chapter. It says, But when it was day, verse 35, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, These magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. It's quite possible that Luke and perhaps Timothy stayed behind in Philippi when they left. And we know that Paul passed back through Philippi at least one more time before he got himself arrested again, and this time sent to prison in Rome, where it's likely that Paul wrote this letter that we're about to read from prison in Rome. But knowing this story, I think, is important. It helps us to understand why Paul cared so much about the Philippian church. He was their spiritual father. He, he was their church planter. He, he led many of them to the Lord. When he left, it seems like they were this fairly small body of believers. But when he wrote this letter about a dozen or so years later, they were much more established with leaders appointed and a growing reputation as a, a loving church, a generous church. Overall, they, they seem to be healthy and stable. They're not without its issues, as we'll see. But knowing this story can also help us imagine Think of, of who may have still been part of this church. Maybe the church was still meeting in Lydia's home. Maybe the, the former slave girl who had been freed was now an active part of the church. Maybe the Philippian jailer was there with his family. Maybe even as an overseer now that Paul mentioned. Paul had his reasons for writing this letter. 
both personal reasons and pastoral reasons. But the foundational reason was simply that he deeply cared about these people. He was personally thankful to God for them and and their help in his ministry. And he was pastorally concerned about their faith. Wanted to make sure they kept growing. I also have my reasons for wanting us to go through Philippians together. Besides that it's simply an awesome book of the Bible. (laughs) I think you'll love it. But it can help us put Christ and keep Christ at the center of our lives in our church. Because Christ really is everything. And Philippians drives that home again and again. And on a lighter note, after going through the depths of the book of Job, I think you've all earned some times at the heights, okay? So we're going to rejoice in Jesus together through Philippians. Let's go ahead and dig in, shall we? If you're still in Acts, flip back to Philippians. I want to start our series by looking at only the first two verses of the book. So the introduction we just read, and then his brief greeting in verse 2 as well. But these verses are far more than just a greeting. Paul takes the, the usual formalities of the day, but then he tweaks the format, and in so doing, he lays the groundwork for the rest of the chapter as he inserts his own details into the greeting. There is some profound theology embedded in his greeting, which is worth dwelling on. The first point I want to give you today, you may have already gathered from our reading of the first verse, and that is that being in Christ Jesus makes us saints. When we are united with Christ, we automatically become saints. Being in Christ Jesus makes us saints. This is what Paul and Timothy called the believers in Philippi, if you noticed said to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, as you walk around Ottawa, you'll see many churches named after saints. Right? You'll, you'll even see a number of schools or streets or other things named after so-called saints. Right? St. Saint, Saint Paul and St. Joseph and St. Alban, St. Patrick... Saint Laurent, Saint Mary, Saint Nicholas, Saint Luke, Saint Peter, many more. Some are biblical characters, you'd recognize their names. Some are more historical religious people. Last month, the Roman Catholic Church and Pope Francis announced plans to canonize or bestow sainthood on five individuals, including one you know well, Mother Teresa. I want to make her a saint. Now, Are these the kind of saints that Paul is talking about here in Philippians? No, he's not. In fact, I think that we've created actually a very inaccurate, unbiblical view of sainthood. Sainthood isn't bestowed by a church. Sainthood is bestowed by Jesus. And and sainthood isn't reserved for the holiest, godliest, most impressive people around. In fact, the title saint simply means holy one or set apart by God, someone who's set apart by God. So who is holy according to God? 
every single person who unites their lives with Jesus. Yes, we are all terrible sinners. But when God forgives us, he cleanses us and he purifies us. Hebrews 10.10 says that we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So if you have believed in Jesus and trusted him to save you, you are a saint, believe it or not. Take the word saint, put it in front of your name. Try it on for size. Okay? St. Ryan, St. Rebecca, St. Ella, St. Emmanuel, St. Maria, St. Michael, St. Ben, St. Daniel, St. John, St. Lynn, St. Andrea, St. Grace. How's that sound? Great, right? If, you're, if you are a Christian, that is just as accurate as saying St. Peter or St. Patrick. You may think, well, how could I ever be a saint? You don't know what I've done with my life. Not very saintly. No, I don't know what you've done. But I do know what Jesus has done for you and me. You can never be holy on your own. You can never earn sainthood. But Jesus was perfectly holy. And when Jesus died, he basically traded clothes with us. He wore your filthy, sinful rags to the cross where he died. And he offers you his sinless, holy, perfect robes of righteousness in return. Dennis Johnson says that the words saint and holy refer to the purity that befits the privilege of standing in the presence of God. A saint is a special person set apart by God and granted access to God's holy presence. Yet, amazingly, the Bible calls people who are not pure or free of deviling sin holy and saints. That's us. Or it can be us. Maybe you're here today and you've never experienced these things before that I'm talking about. You can. Even today. Even now. See, you are more sinful than you dare to think. But you're also more loved than you can imagine. And God, in his love, loves to cleanse and purify sinners and make them saints. You just need to believe that that Jesus died for you and trust him to save you, leaving your life of sin, making a new life that revolves around him. And he gives us his clothes. We wonder, well, how could defiled people like us ever be set apart before the Lord to, to serve him? How can we ever be set apart even to survive before his presence? Can't even come before his holiness and hope to survive. How could that happen? The answer lies in three little words we saw here in Philippians. In Christ Jesus. It says, to all the saints, in Christ Jesus. 
Korea Philippi. That phrase, in Christ, or in Christ Jesus, is used multiple, multiple times in Philippians. It's, it refers to what theologians call union with Christ. And it's something that happens to us the moment that we're saved. We are united with Christ, which means that our sinful selves died when Christ died. We died with Christ. And it means that we were raised with Christ to new life when he was resurrected. And it means that now when God looks at us, he sees Christ. We are bound so tightly to Christ that his obedience and his death and his resurrection become ours. We now can say that we possess Christ's own righteousness, his own purity, his own holiness. It's all bound up in the union of Christ. And if you can truly grasp your union with Christ, it can free you from so much guilt and shame and even fear. So he's saying, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Are we really faultless people? (laughs) No, of course not. But if we're in Christ, we are. Now, compared to Paul's other books, there's a unique feature of Paul's address to the Philippians. This is the only book in which he singles out church leaders in the greeting. It says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Now, we believe that overseers and deacons refer to the two biblical offices for church leaders. Overseers would be synonymous with elders or pastors who govern or teach the church. Deacons simply means leading servants. So many people who serve in the church in leading ways. So why... Do Paul and Timothy clarify that they're addressing the leaders here? Were they saying, well, there are saints, and then there are leaders? Or, there are saints, and then there are leaders? I think it wasn't that, it wasn't to say that leaders are different than saints. It wasn't to say the leaders aren't saints. It's to emphasize that they aren't the only saints. See, people could have thought, maybe they thought that this letter would have been only addressed to the leaders of the church. It's meant for them, the people on some special level with God. Nope. Neither was it directed just to the congregation. Like, hey, listen, I got your leaders' backs. You need to obey your leaders. Wasn't saying that either. This letter was meant for everyone in the church. All the saints in Philippi, including the leaders. This means that there will be something in this book for all of us. So pay attention as we go through. Being in Christ Jesus can make us saints, a deep, it's a glorious truth. However, saints are not the only thing we become. If it were, we could just sit back and do nothing. I mean, we're already holy, Well, then why do we need to live like it? Okay, we're already holy no matter what we do, so we don't need to be a part of the church. 
We don't need to serve anyone. We don't need to look out for the needy. We don't need to learn or grow or mature. We're already saints. So we can just sit back and watch Netflix all day, every day. Not quite. See, once we're made saints, we're given new jobs. Kind of like Paul, given his new job. We're given new jobs to do until Christ returns. I think we can see this in the other title that Paul and Timothy use in these verses. They called believers saints, but did you notice what they called themselves? Very beginning, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. But servants doesn't actually do this term justice. The word they use here is doulos. And in their day, doulos meant slave. I think Paul and Timothy actually here, whether it was on purpose or not, they exemplify the inevitable progression of our faith. See, being in Christ Jesus makes us saints, which leads to us being slaves in his service. Inevitably follows. When we become saints of Christ, it inevitably leads to us being slaves in his service. Now I know, in our modern Western ears, this sounds rather awful. Know that. Because we are taught slavery equals bad. And that is almost universally true. Okay, don't get me wrong. We humans don't have the right to forcefully enslave fellow image bearers of God. What people have historically done, what people are currently doing to to other people is inexcusable and at its root is nothing short of evil. Contrary to what some people think in our culture, the Bible never condones slavery as we know it. It never does that. I could try to explain the differences between modern slavery and slavery in Paul's day, because there are differences, but that's beside the point. Because the fact is, doulos, the word that Paul uses here, doulos clearly referred to slaves who were owned by other people and who were legally required to be subservient to their masters. Not too different. But whether or not there are differences between modern and ancient slavery, there are massive differences between being a slave of other people and being a slave of Jesus Christ. For one, he's a perfect master, which no human could ever live up to. Two, being his slave is not a negative experience. In fact, it is an extremely positive one. So, for today, I encourage you, set aside any negative connotations that you hear when you hear the word slave, okay? And let's just ask, what does it mean to be a slave of Christ? Well, imagine, okay, we'll make a parallel here. Imagine that if you were a slave of some other person, what would that mean for you? be a slave of them. It would mean that from the moment you wake up till the time that you go to bed, you are to be about your master's business, okay? Doing whatever he's told you to do. If he tells you to build him a shed, you build him a shed. 
If he tells you to harvest the tomatoes, you harvest the tomatoes. If he tells you to go shopping for him, you go shopping. You don't have the right to tell him no or later. His desires, his dreams, his, his preferences trump yours every time. You have to submit your schedule to his schedule, your agenda, even your health or your safety to his plans for you. In a real sense, you belong to him and are completely at his disposal. Now, sure, a good master would treat you fairly and ensure that you get rest and nourishment, but your life is to be entirely consumed by serving your master. That's what it would mean to be a slave of another person, right? Now, let's translate that into us being slaves of Jesus. Being Jesus' slave means that from the moment you wake up to the time you go to bed, the moment, from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed, we are to be about our master's business. Doing whatever he's told us to do. If he tells us to make disciples, we make disciples. If he tells us to serve one another in love, we serve. If he tells us to go on the missions field, we go without looking back. A slave of Jesus doesn't have the right to tell him no or later. Jesus' desires and Jesus' preferences and Jesus' commands trump ours every time. We have to submit our schedule to him, our agenda, even our health and our safety to Jesus' agenda. We belong to him and we are completely at his disposal. Paul says elsewhere, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, Jesus is a good master. He's the best master you could possibly imagine. A perfect, loving master. So he nourishes us. He sustains us. He grows us. He encourages us. He gives us rest. And he will reward us one day. But our lives are to be entirely consumed by serving him. That's what it means to be a slave of Jesus. Dennis Johnson says, Paul and Timothy are living proof that those whom Jesus saves, he enslaves. That puts it well. But some of you may still think this sounds rather harsh or unattractive. I don't, I don't want to go that deep in. That is until you realize that everyone, yourself included, is enslaved by someone or something. No matter what. You may be enslaved by your dreams, your job, your education, your relationships, friends, family, your possessions. Maybe enslaved by, by money or success or fame or leisure or entertainment, sports, exercise, sex, food. Maybe we're enslaved by many of these things. But your life revolves around and is consumed by something, by serving someone. 
whether that is your boss, your family, your community, or yourself. Let me tell you something. Every master but Jesus will disappoint, exploit, and brutalize you in the end. Here's the thing. Slavery to Jesus is actually the most liberating thing in the world. That frees us from all these other bonds. The early church father, Chrysostom, put it this way. One who is a slave of Christ is truly free from sin. If he is truly a slave of Christ, he is not a slave in any other realm. See, not only does slavery to Christ free us from all other idolatrous affections or obligations we have, lowering ourselves to be Christ's slave follows in the footsteps of Christ himself. Interesting thing, the only time Paul uses the word doulos, or slave, in Philippians again, is chapter 2, verse 7. Go ahead, just peek ahead there. I'm not going to read it, but look at chapter 2, verse 7. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Matthew Harmon says it this way, The work of the ultimate servant, Jesus Christ, creates servants who are empowered to love and live. As he did. You and I do not have the right to live however we please. We're to be slaves of Christ. What does that mean for you? Is your life consumed by Christ? If not, what needs to change? Maybe some idols need to go. What would it mean if you saw your schoolwork as part of your service to Christ? What would it mean if you, as a, as a stay-at-home mom, saw yourself as a slave to Jesus, not a slave to your kids? What would it mean if, if you, as a nurse, saw your work as a nurse as an opportunity to love him as you love others? What would it mean if you worked in the government, as, worked in the government but as a slave of another master? Think about these things. You may not be jumping for joy at the prospect of being slaves, but we're all called to this. And I think that Philippians will prove that being Christ's slaves is the road to lasting joy. You're not going to find it in anything else. If we've been saved by Christ, we are now saints who are called to be slaves. Christ never comes into our lives as only the Savior. He comes also as Lord and King. Some of you might hear all this and be a bit worried about it, thinking, well, I don't measure up. You may want your life consumed by Jesus, but it hardly ever feels that way. More often than not, you feel like a failure. You serve yourself more than Jesus, and you know it. You wonder how Jesus could ever want you 
as his servant, let alone his child. Well, I've got good news for you today. There is grace available, even for you. This actually hints at the whole reason Paul wrote this letter. Because the Philippian church may have been saints, but they didn't have it made. They didn't have it all figured out. And so right after, right after Paul says he is in the service of Jesus and we are holy in Jesus, he says this, look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I think is a clear implication for us. We are enslaved saints, but enslaved saints still need grace and peace from God. Even if we're already holy in God's sight, we still need his grace on a daily basis. Enslaved saints still need grace and peace from God. As you, did, as you entered our church building today, you likely greeted some people, were greeted by others. Hey, hello, good morning. How's it going? Welcome. Right? In verse 2, Paul takes what would have usually been that like joyful greeting of his day. And in the Greek, it's the word karine. Karine. And he does a play, of, play on words of it, like a pun. He substitutes the word karine with the word for grace, charis. And then Paul adds on the traditional Jewish greeting, shalom, peace, which of course has a much richer sense than our definition of peace. It's not just an absence of strife, but it also includes this wholeness, this completeness. It's the security that we gain from being loved and saved by God. But even the order of these words is important. God's peace flows from God's grace. And if you don't know what grace is, grace is simply the undeserved blessing and favor of God. But here's the thing. We usually associate grace and peace with when we get saved. Right? By grace you have been saved. And we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But God's grace doesn't just forgive us and then leave us there to fend for ourselves. God's grace is vital for our continuing sanctification and transformation. God's grace is not only what saves us, it's what is still saving us. It's what's making us holy, what's forming us into Christ-likeness. Saints still need grace. You and I are proof of this every single day. There is not a day that goes by when we are not in need of the ever-new mercies of God. I love what Tim Keller says about this. He says, The one message that both believers and non-believers need to hear is that salvation and adoption are by grace alone. And then he says, If we're bored 
by this emphasis on grace. If we're bored by it, I believe we are revealing a misunderstanding of the gospel. The gospel of free, gracious justification and adoption is not just the way we enter the kingdom, it's also the way we grow into the likeness of Christ. See, you are constantly in the need of grace, but that grace is constantly available to you. If you don't ever grasp this truth, you will have a persistently frustrating spiritual life. The best measure of your maturity in Christ is really, I believe, the the level of your awareness of your need for grace. So, how does this work? How does grace help us grow? Well, think about it. It's grace that brings you peace with God. It's also grace that relieves your daily fears. It's this grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. It's grace that forgives your sin. It's also grace that helps you grow in forsaking that sin daily. It's grace that brings you to God. It's also grace that keeps you close to God, safe in his hand. It's grace that saves, not by works. It's also grace that then motivates you to do good works. It's grace that God loves you. It's also grace that helps you love God more every day. It's grace that you have a story to tell. It's also grace that inspires you to tell your story. It's grace that makes you a part of the church. And it's grace that allows us to love one another, teaches us to love one another. Really, it's grace that makes you a saint. It's also grace that helps you then serve Christ as his slave. But I think that the most amazing thing about grace is that it is still available to us, even now. And that's because it doesn't come from us. It's freely given from God through Christ. It says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you, if you were the one in charge of giving grace to me, you'd have given up on me a long time ago. I'm way too much of a screw-up. And you'd probably say the same to me. If I was the one in charge of giving grace to you, I'd probably have given up on you. But God hasn't given up on us. Can you see yourself in these verses today? As a sinner turned saint and slave who still needs grace for God's glory. Because of his grace, I can say, I am in Christ. I belong to Christ. I hope you can say the same. 
And I pray that we will continually go deeper in our understanding of this and our rejoicing in this until we are humbled to bear the title of saint. And until we're happy to bear the title of slave. Let's pray. God, we need you. We are nothing without you. We fail and fall on our faces every day. And yet you're always there to lift us up. May we run to you once again this morning. Receive your free grace in the form of Jesus. Take hold of his life. And then God, teach us to serve you. Teach us to love you. Every day, more and more, we ask for more of you. Show us our need. And then fill that need. In Jesus' name.